Mark Cohn, who put together a list of factors that he thought contributed to low morale in the military. And I think a lot of these apply to working uh, in uh, Christian work overseas, too. So that would be uh, ambiguous job duties. You know, a lot of times you get out there and what you thought you were going out there is not what you're ending up doing. Um, they, uh, you get isolated, socially isolated. Uh, for example, I know with Samaritan's Purse, you know, some of the, the locations they work at um, in, uh, in some of the countries that I won't mention, but they're like really, they're very out there. They're very, very vulnerable. Um, there's a sense of powerlessness a lot of times when you're uh, in these settings. Um, there's exposure to secondary trauma. So, uh, like you're here, maybe, hopefully, you yourself won't get traumatized, although it could happen. Uh, but you also may be hearing a lot about people who had traumatic events happen to them. Uh, there's a lot of exposure to poverty and uh, economic uh, instability and so on. And um, a lot of times people get this worldview angst. Like, you just kind of don't know, like, this isn't what you signed up for. This is... This seems strange. Like you, you wouldn't think God would let this happen this way, or you pray and pray, and it didn't seem to work out right. <clears throat> okay, so I've adapted this from this Paul Barton military thing, but this was this is kind of some of what he found when, when soldiers in Iraq were being very, uh, you know, were very uh, uh, had really low morale. Um. If you look, you know, there's big recidivism in Christian work overseas. Like, there's a lot of people who drop out of it and don't continue. And um, I think some of this is due to these different things, this concept which you're probably familiar with, but compassion fatigue. I first heard of this when I was in Nairobi, actually, from the people with the International uh, Red Cross. But there's just sense that you've, okay, you've given and given and given, and now you're kind of tired of giving. Uh, actually, a lot of medical workers stateside have this too. I mean, you just, you know, it's like, hey, I'm doing everything, and people, like, I think I've done as much as I can do. Uh, burnout, which is where you feel you're just tired all the time, you're not getting rewarded, um, you're feeling like your values and the values of the organization aren't really a very good match, um, and you're, you get cynical when you're burned out. It's a work thing, it's not depression, it's something that comes from your work. Vicarious traumatization is something that's really related to post-traumatic stress disorders where you hear the gory details of an event so much and so often that now you're weighed down by the event. And sometimes you can kind of get sort of PTSD by proxy. And then there's actual post-traumatic stress disorder, okay, where you kind of have these intrusive memories and uh, jumpiness, uh, easily startled, and because of something that's happened. Um, so those are what we're trying to mitigate. We want this, we're, this is why we're trying to build resilience. Because one one idea on resilience is that you got to work on it in advance if you're going to work on it at all. A lot of resilience is kind of an inherited thing, or part of your constitution, or part of the way you're you kind of you developed, and now you're an adult, and then you're resilient. But it's not a hundred percent. And in fact, the guys who really look at resilience and really study this a lot, think of it in terms of a battery, okay, um, in that it's something that can lose its charge and then be recharged and so on. So a certain amount of resilience would be something you can't just do a lot about, and then some of it you may be able to. Um, so here's 
a definition of resilience for you to think of, um, which, uh, just as background, uh, the capacity to adapt successfully in the presence of risk and adversity and to bounce back from setbacks, trauma, and high stress. And I like to kind of attach what I, you know, um, think about to something in the Word of God. And here I just pull this out of Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. But I'm not going to talk about Christian resilience too much today, but I will just say this little part. Any resilience that we have as Christians is in Christ. So it's in the Lord. So this isn't, I don't want to view this as some kind of like pop psychology thing or so on. I do think resi- resilience is a really interesting and complex phenomenon, uh, but, uh, but none of, nothing's detached from God's universe. So, um, so, I'm going to shift, here, shift gears a little bit as we head toward the Psalms. And um, I want to quote from uh, this pretty famous book in psychiatry. It's sort of a modern <coughs> classic by Judith Herman. Uh, it's called Trauma and Recovery. And here she comments on one of the problems that Christians face when they've gone through some kind of traumatic event. And, you know, sometimes your employment can almost seem like a traumatic event, even though... You know, DSM would say no, okay. But um, anyway, traumatic events call into question basic human relationships. They breach the attachments of family, friendship, love, and community. They shatter the construction of the self that is formed and sustained in relation to others. They undermine the belief systems that give meaning to human experience. They violate the victim's faith in natural or divine order and, uh, and cast the victim in a state, into a state of existential crisis. Okay? So this is Judith Herman at Harvard. I don't know what her religious background is, but she's clearly describing people who have a religious crisis or a crisis of faith after a traumatic event. And this can definitely happen to us all. Okay? Um, now, on the brighter side, there are ten resilience factors, and one of these, and you can hear all about the rest of them if you, I'm not pitching tomorrow because there may be someone good at, you know, against me tomorrow, but if you want to hear about, more about resilience, I'll be telling you about it. But I'm going to neglect them all but one, which is religion and spirituality, okay? And there's pretty good evidence that religion and spirituality is a contributor to people's being resilient, for people being able to bounce back. And if you think about it, it doesn't take long to figure out why that might be. Because people who have faith in God, they're more optimistic, presumably, than others because they think the world has a meaning. And this idea of being able to make meaning out of your experience, that's that's considered to be like a, a big resilience factor. It's considered to be a, a real plus in the positive psychology world. So, um, and they say that people, people are man is a meaning meaning making you know being. I like to think of us as meaning identifying beings. Okay, I don't think we're really making it. That suggests that it's all subjective, but we, I do think we can identify. It. And so, so this is just I'm just showing you because. You know, we do this. Uh, the uh, uh, a single systematic review on um, studies that, that were studying religion and spirituality and resilience. But this is like a lot of. This is just one paper. There are quite a few of these. Um, a second one is um, on mindfulness. Okay, 
And so, uh, you know, mindfulness is like very, very popular. I don't know if you kind of run into this, but it's like everywhere you turn, mindfulness. This is the, this is the uh, solution to your problems. Well, um, a, a friend of mine at the State Department um, sent me this paper recently. He's actually, he's not a Christian. He was in the Peace Corps, and I think he's kind of quasi-Buddhist or something. But he thought I'd be interested in this, and it's called, it's, a, it's also a review. It's called uh, Mind the Hype. A Critical Evaluation and Prescription Agenda for Research on Mindfulness and Meditation. And basically, these are, this is some people who are actually kind of Buddhist-oriented saying, you know, people are over-popularizing mindfulness. This is like fundamentally a religious technique. And also the research that's done on it is not very well um, constructed sometimes and that there are a lot of different things that they're calling mindfulness that aren't actually... You know, that much mindfulness is not, it's not that specific a thing. So this is interesting. So when you see all this research on mindfulness, just bear in mind there are people who critique this sort of happy research on mindfulness. And if you want to look into it a little further, there's another guy who's written a book on mindfulness called McMindfulness. Okay? And um, it's about the corporate use of mindfulness to help people be happy in their difficult circumstances in the corporate environment. Okay, and, and that's why they want you to be mindful. So, so as I'm hearing all about mindfulness, I'm thinking, well, I'm not particularly comfortable with mindfulness. I mean, there are a lot of Christian psychologists who are, okay, so I don't mean this is a criticism of them, but for me, I don't, you know, that doesn't, I don't feel that comfortable with it. So I'm thinking to myself, what, what's consistent with the Christian faith that might be sort of serving a role similar to mindfulness. And so I thought, well, how about the Psalms? It's not exactly equivalent to mindfulness, but then we don't want to just kind of appropriate, you know, kind of the Psalms for kind of a psychology purpose. But on the other hand, I I did look into it a little bit, and because I lived overseas a lot, I was exposed to quite a few... Christian traditions, you know, so, I mean, even when I was in Mombasa one time in Kenya, we couldn't find an English-speaking church that, you know, that was Protestant, so we ended up going to the Catholic church, so I I call myself an Anglo-Bapterian, because those are the different (laughs) denominations that I found myself in, okay, and uh, because in Germany it was Baptist, and in North Carolina it was Presbyterian, and in England it was Anglican. So, um, and, and, the, and the Anglican in particular has the Book of Common Prayer, which I think almost anybody who's looked at it really, you know, finds interesting and helpful. And um, in the Book of Common Prayer, they've got a 30-day plan for reading the Psalms every day. So you can read. It's got a way to read through the Psalms. You know, if you try to read the Psalms every day uh, in a month, the problem is when you get to Psalm 119. Okay, because it's really long. Okay, and so in the, in this plan in the back of the Book of Common Prayer, they divide that up into segments, and they also kind of they it's all it's, it goes numerically through the Psalms, but it uh, you know it, when you get to a, a clump of Psalms where one of them's really long, it'll have fewer Psalms and so on. So it's really kind of evenly divided, and it's actually divided into morning and evening because it's intended for use in uh, morning and evening prayer, but you can use it these other ways too. So I decided I would try a little experiment uh, with myself. 
And so um, I uh, started reading through the Psalms on a monthly basis, starting in about 2011. And so it's an ongoing experiment, but so far my N of 1 has yielded very good results. Okay? And so, um, so, uh, but it's not exactly an N of 1 because um, the church has been reading the Psalms like for quite a long time and the Jewish people before that. So I'm proposing that we consider praying the Psalms as a way of enhancing our resilience as Christians. Okay? So um, why would we do this? Well, um, the Psalms are an example of a prayerful attitude and strategy. By the way, when I say pray the Psalms, you know, earlier, like first of all, when you read in the King James Version, it says the Psalms of David. Okay? So then the tendency is to think, well, these were like, just David wrote all these. And, um, you know, and that's what David was praying. That's not for me. But that's not really how the church views this. I mean, first of all, internally, I mean, it says, you know, it says, I mean, Psalm 90 says Moses wrote it. And Solomon wrote, you know, certain Psalms. And Asaph, it says, wrote them. There are ways of understanding that. But anyway, um, there's indication you can take these on as your own prayers. So. But how to do it? This is what we're going to talk about. An example of I think it's an example of, of prayerful attitude and strategy. So one thing I've noticed since I've been praying the Psalms is it really teaches you how to approach God, how to address God. Um, I think it provides prayers for people who've been traumatized, and I'll give you some illustrations of that in a minute. I think it provides a template for traumatized people who are having trouble finding words or concepts to capture their experience. And frankly, if you pray the Psalms over and over and really make them your prayers, you'll start using that language too. You know, just like if you, you know, watch TV a lot, you'll, you know, you'll start talking like the people you're watching on TV a lot. If you pray the Psalms a lot, you might start using that language a little bit to think. Um, it's an inoculation against cynicism. There's actually... There's psalms that are really, um, you know, re- reflect sadness. There are no atheist psalms. There's, I can't find any atheist psalms. There's, you, someone said, well, what about Psalm 88? If you know Psalm 88, that's like this real depressing psalm. But even that one begins, the first verse in Psalm 88, when that's like, I don't have any friends, I'm terrible, life is terrible, everything's terrible. But it begins, O God of my salvation. Okay, so it starts off that way. Um, it's an inoculation against cynicism. It's a powerful. It contains a powerful theology of suffering. When you get into this, uh, also if you pray these, you're going to be connecting. You're going to be saying prayers that Saint Augustine prayed. You'll be saying prayers that any great Christian think, saint you can think of prayed. You'll be praying that exact prayer, and you'll be praying prayers that the Lord said. Okay, and. Clearly, the New Testament writers, because they quote them all the time. Um, and uh, let's see, and it's going to enhance your resilience and it will foster your endurance. Um, now, tomorrow we'll mention that resilience itself is kind of a morally neutral concept, so you could be bad and resilient, okay? But Christian endurance is what we're called to, and that's a concept that has love as its basis. This is where you continue on in the faith in the kingdom of God, even if you're about to get run over by you know, steamroller or whatever. This is Christian endurance, okay? 
<clears throat> as for God. Um, so, why pray the Psalms? Well, how can we know that we can pray the Psalms in our prayers? Well, we can follow the example of Jesus. He's our example. And Jesus, we know, prayed the Psalms. And you can easily find that out by uh, going to the crucifixion story. And when Jesus said, um, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He is praying Psalm 22.1. And when he says, Into thy hands I commit my spirit, he is praying Psalm 31.5. Okay? So, uh, these are, he's quoting, he's not just quoting, he's praying. Okay, this. Um, the ancient Jews prayed the Psalms, we know for sure, and we, we know for sure, and I'll show you why, that the early church uh, prayed the Psalms. <clears throat> Interestingly, if you go to Psalm 22, so as it continues beyond the part that he quoted, he says, Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. So this, he's, this is in his mind. And um, from Psalm 31, in the larger context, In you, O Lord, have I taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Incline your ear to me. Make haste to deliver me. Be, a, be my strong rock, a castle to keep me safe. For you are my craig and my stronghold. For the sake of your name, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that they have secretly set for me. For you are my tower of strength. Into your hands I commend my spirit, for you have redeemed me, O Lord, O God of truth. So, when, so this is Jesus praying after he prayed, uh, O God, O God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then he's praying this hopeful uh, phrase and saying, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Um, the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. Um, when, I, when I was trying to, I, if you want to read more about this, I've got a a chapter that I wrote about it for the Langham um, Langham Publishers in a book called Tackling Trauma, and I've, you find a lot of these references here. But um, I, I sent sent my little chapter around for a priest to read, and a Catholic priest. Um, I had a nun friend, and I think she didn't want to tell a Protestant what it was like, and so she referred it to this Catholic seminary guy, and so he wrote back. He was pretty he was pretty favorable, but he said. Um, he said, you know, the rest of the Bible is God's inspired words to us. But in the Psalms, God has given us inspired words to pray to Him. And I thought, okay, that's nice. That's cool. Uh, here's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He, he says, the book of Psalms is distinguished from all other books of the Bible by the fact that it contains only prayers. Are these prayers to God also God's own word? That seems rather difficult to understand. We grasp it only... When we remember that we can learn true prayer only from Jesus Christ, from the word of the Son of God, who lives with us men, to God the Father who lives in eternity. So it's the words of Christ to God the Father. All prayers of the Bible are such prayers which we pray together with Jesus Christ in which he accompanies us. So when we pray the Psalms, you have to pray them in Christ. And if you really try to do it, you'll see why I'm saying that. Because some of them are imprecatory psalms. You know, these are the cursing psalms. So some of them are, you know, they can be helpful sometimes in thinking about things. <laughs> okay. So I know Psalm 94 is one of these, Psalm 109. Uh, some of these are talking about the, the powers of the age and, uh, you know, how 
they're not going to stand, um, that God's more powerful than all of them. Some of these are a little extreme. What I've read, um, like where they say, well, I hope your children will die. I hope your children's children will die. I hope you never get a job. I hope you, you know, like really, this can go on for a little bit. So um, anyway, but there are two ways to do that. One is to pray them against the forces of evil. Okay, that's what some guys say. Okay, and so um, the other is, uh, this is what the priest told me. Well, if you I, if you pray those to about your actual human enemies. They'll, that'll go straight to God, and He'll just do with them whatever He does with your prayers. You know, so he, He's not going to do anything wrong for sure. So, but I think in terms of Christian attitude, love, uh, we're supposed to love our enemies, and so keep that in mind. Um, anyway, um, so the church prays the Psalms. Well, here's from Ambrose of Milan. So when we were, I'm I'm touting my Nairobi experience, but I also so it was posted in Frankfurt, Germany. And I used to cover um, cover Milan, Italy. We have a consulate there that has very little psychiatry business, sadly. But anyway, we went down there and we went to this old church and there was a skeleton there and it was the skeleton of Ambrose of Milan who, uh, who was a guy who helped uh, St. Augustine come to Christ. But here's what uh, Bishop Ambrose said. When other passages of Scripture are used in the church... The words are drowned in the noise of talking. So he's saying like when they're reading scripture in church, and this back in the day, everybody would be chattering. Okay? Um, but when the Psalter is read, all are dumb. Anyone possessed of his five wits should blush with shame if he did not begin the day with the sweet psalm. Since even the tiniest birds open and close the day with sweet psalms of holy devotion. Okay? So there you go. Um, and then this uh, Theodore of Mopsuestia, who, I don't know, some of you, you know, church history-oriented people may know who this is. I, he's a famous bishop from the East. Uh, one time I was invited to give a talk in Erbil, Iraq, to a group that included a lot of Catholic Christians. And I mentioned Theodore of Mopsuestia, and they all, oh, yes, yes, we know. So he, he's a known guy. But anyway... Of other scriptures, most men know nothing, but the Psalms are repeated in private houses, in streets and marketplaces by those who have learned them by heart and feel the soothing power of their divine melodies. So actually, in the history of the church, it's really been expected, well, you know, this is what you're supposed to be learning. This is what you're supposed to be, it's one of the things you should be memorizing is the Psalms. So, um, and again, if you read them a lot or make them your prayers, you may not... Memorize it, maybe you will, but they'll start coming to you, that's for sure. Um, St. Athanasius to uh, Marcellinus, this is one of his students, so Athanasius is in 295 plus. Uh, in the Psalter, you learn about yourself. You find depicted in all the movements of your soul, you, all the changes, all its ups and downs, its failures and recoveries. Moreover, whenever your particular need or trouble... Uh, from this uh, particular book, you can select form word, uh, select a form of words to fit it, so that you do not merely hear and then pass on, but you learn the way to remedy your ill. Okay, so he's kind of saying exactly what we're talking about here. He's saying, read these psalms, get to know them, and appropriate them to your own situation, and God will work uh, work with you with them. So, how can Psalms increase our resilience? This is my thought. 
uh, by, give, by helping us give voice to stress and distress, by showing us a way of channeling our thoughts to God during times of distress, and by showing us how to find meaning in adversity and pointing us to a hopeful and thankful outlook. Now, I want to give you some illustrations here. So, first is what I'm calling voicing the unutterable. So, um, I would say, okay, if we're healthcare workers, you're going to, you will probably, if you're doing any kind of serious work, there are times when it just things can be very, very difficult. I mean, just the situation is quite difficult. What you're facing is difficult. Someone is just in a horrible circumstance. I mean, for me in psychiatry, there are a lot of people who just can't reason very well or maybe Christians who have, got, you know, their faith has been cast out on or non-Christians who God's trying to reach and their faith is blocking them. I mean, their lack of faith is blocking them. So here's from Psalm 38. Because I think it's important to know if these really are God's word, God's inspired word that he's given to us to pray to him, then when people have these Experiences when we have these experiences or when we know people who are having them, these are words we can use. So I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth, in whose mouth are no rebukes because he just doesn't have it within him to fight back. Okay? So that's, that's from Psalm 38. And uh, so in Psalm uh, 39, so here's like voicing what you just think you can't voice. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. My distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? In Psalm 69, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise those who are his who are prisoners. Now, here's see here's what sort of starts to happen in the Psalms. You have these kind of really sad things, and then there's this little glimmer of hope or God that's in there that's somehow juxtaposed, and it's not always a logical connection. Um, here's from Psalm 88, which we just mentioned. O oh Lord, why do you cast away my cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? So it, I, again, as a psychiatrist and a Christian for all you know, for forty years, you know, we've done this. Um, lots of times you have Christians who think, you know, if I was a better Christian, I would not feel this way. You know, I just this is not right for me to feel this way. Um, and I, this is where I, I mean, you can't just sort of preach, you know, tell people, oh yes, you know, whatever, but. On the other hand, I think we can understand, like from a Christian's perspective, you can feel that way. I mean, like lots of Christians have felt that way. And if, if your Christian faith is such that it only allows for kind of giddy, happy times and not for how to process the difficult times and the suffering, that's not the strongest faith. You know, you have to, you have to be in a situation where you know that God is with us in the midst of our trouble. Okay? Um, I know. So there was going back to Rwanda. Um, there was this woman, Jacqueline, who was working for an NGO there, and she uh, she was pregnant. She was um, Tutsi, and she was pregnant at the time the genocide broke out. Her husband was out of the country. She ended up running into the country and hiding. She was kind of a heavy woman. 
when the genocide was over, um, she kind of she came out of the woods from hiding, and her mother didn't recognize her because she was so thin. She was extremely skinny. For part of the time, she'd hid above like a, like the ceiling in a house, you know, where this kind of drop down ceiling is. She hid. She was like, and people had been killed, and she could not believe what had happened in her country and how cruel people again had been. And she was a very serious Christian. Her husband was a Christian. And uh, I had, so we were talking because I was, you know, visiting as, uh, because they provided services for Rwandese and it's just part of the job. So I said, well, how did you, um, you know, how did you get, you know, you, you still a Christian? Well, yeah. Well, how did you get your faith back? Well, she said she couldn't believe. She did, for a while, she just couldn't believe God would do such a thing. Like, how could that be? I mean, God, this, you know, this just can't be. Um, and then her husband prayed for her, she said. And then she didn't really have a very clear pathway as to why she believed again, but she did. Okay, so it just kind of came back. And that's how you find in the Psalms sometimes. It'll you know go on with this kind of really sort of defeated part, and then it, sort, it shifts over into speaking about the grandeur of God. And I think that's the way it works sometimes. Um, here's from Psalm 102. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. So if you read Psalm 102, that really sounds to me like someone has major depression, although you're not really supposed to read these things back. But For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever, and you are remembered throughout all generations. You will rise and have pity on Zion. It is time for it is time to favor her. The appointed time has come. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have an end, have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So that's how Psalm 102 ends. So he starts off with this really depressive thing, and then he ends up with this reflection on the everlasting God. Um, so presenting unacceptable feelings and thoughts to God. So these are the things that, like, well, the Christian can't really say that, right? So... First, there are quite a few of these psalms that say, How long, O Lord? Okay? But Psalm 13 has the most how longs on it. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear grief in my soul? Have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy prevail over me? Look, answer me, Lord my God. Give light to the eyes, lest, to my eyes, lest I fall asleep in death, lest my enemies say I've overcome him, lest my foes rejoice uh, when they see me fail. As for me, I trust in your merciful love. Let my heart rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord who has been bountiful with me. I will sing psalms in the name of the Lord Most High. And in fact, in that letter of uh, of uh, 
Athanasius to Marcellinus, he actually tells Marcellinus you're supposed to sing the Psalms. Like he says, you're, don't, sing, don't just say them, sing them. I find that very interesting because I really, I mostly don't sing them. Occasionally I do, but it's a little embarrassing. But, um, but the, the Grail Psalms, which I'm actually using, uh, these are, these are, it's a Catholic liturgical version of the Psalms, but it's, it's, I like it because it's easy to understand and read. Um, those are intended to be sung, okay? And, and if you go to Anglican Evensong, you know, they, they sing the Psalms. So it's a very historic Christian way to do it. And of course, you know a lot of the, the songs that we sing just in regular evangelical churches. You know, some of those are, are uh, psalms uh, that are uh, set to music. Um, a mighty fortress is our God. That's Psalm 46. It's a little bit rearranged, but that's anyway. Um, so here are other psalms that ask, How long, O Lord? So when you're thinking, Where are you, God? I just really, you know, you don't want to say that in a. I mean, you can that however it comes out. But I mean, I wouldn't necessarily want to think that in an angry way, although you might do that. But when you're saying this, when you're frustrated, first of all, you're believing when you're asking this. And then you're doing something that is in this inspired prayer book of the Bible. Um, the Psalms also show us how, how to deal with, with our, our, our thinking. So Psalm 42 and 43 are, are very helpful in that way. So um, Psalm 42, for those of you who are familiar with it, this is like a really beloved psalm. Um, and uh, St. Augustine says that back in the early church, like when you join the church at Easter time, that was, this is the song they sang was Psalm 42. Uh, like the deer that yearns for running streams, so my soul is yearning for you, O oh my God. My soul is thirsting for God, the living God. When can I enter and appear before the face of God? My tears have become my bread by day and by night, presumably because he's, you know, confessing and uh, feeling repentant before the Lord. As they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things will I remember as I pour out my soul, for I would go to the place of your wondrous tent, all the way to the house of God, amid cries of gladness and thanksgiving, the throng keeping joyful festival." Um, and then in Psalm 43, verse 2, For you are the God in whom I take refuge. And then he says, Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Uh, but then he picks up and he says, he expresses his faith in God. Send, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Um, I think Psalm 77 shows how to build resilience through finding meaning. So I said this thing, this idea of finding meaning in adversity, that's like a big resilience concept, you know, the ability to find meaning in adversity. So Psalm 77 is about Israel, and then it's like asking, where's God? Because it seems not to be there. And then it changes. So, in the day of my distress, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hands are raised unwearied. My soul refuses comfort. Will the Lord reject us forever? Will He show us His favor no more? Has His mercy vanished forever? Has His promise come to an end? I said, this is what causes my grief, that the right hand of the Most High has changed. So he's really doubting whether God's really uh, you know, going to help him. Um, then he says, I remember the deeds of the Lord. So he looks back on what God has already done. And he says, I remember your wonders of old. 
So he meditates on God's work. He remembers that God is holy. He remembers God's power. He remembers his faithfulness to his ancestors. So this is a big one in the Psalms. He thinks of God's power and control as demonstrated in nature. And we know nature is on the side of of God's people, by the way, if you read Revelation. And he thinks about nature, about God's power in thunder, lightning, and the whirlwind. And he says in the end, Your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, but the trace of your steps was not seen. So he's really just saying, like, God, God's, his purposes are out there, we, but we can't always discern them. Uh, a, a second one along these lines, and I'm only going to get, go to do two of these, is uh, Psalm 44. It's a similar psalm, but this one has a big um, recognition in the New Testament. So it says, uh, We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them the victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself and do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our misery and oppression? Well, that's how Psalm 44 ends, which is a pretty downbeat note. Um, But I said you have to read these in... uh, light of the New Testament, light of of Christ. And here's an example. So here's Paul quoting this exact psalm in Romans 8. So he says this, um, he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. How will he also, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then, he, but he quotes from this. Um, he says, "Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered." So this is just exactly what the psalmist said, ending on this downbeat note. But Paul says, um, "No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life." nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul, you know, Paul's like, yeah, we are, you know, Christians, we're, you know, he was beheaded. I mean, lots of those uh, early Christians uh, uh, had violent deaths, but at in this, at this point in God's salvation story, um, it's clear after the resurrection, we all know this isn't the end for us. Um, so, I'll just read this, this thing from P.S. Drevers. Okay, this is this um, guy I think made a good observation. When we delve deeper into what lies behind the literal sense of the words of the Psalms, we bring to light a new spiritual meaning which is the full depth that lies buried beneath the surface of the text. So this is what we should do if we're trying to pray the psalm, see what God has to say to us in it. This deeper, holier meaning can be discovered in the period after Christ because in His light, the text takes on, a new, on an altogether new perspective. 
It is the new dimension which has been added to the development of the history of redemption by the coming of Christ. When we explain the Psalms in this way, we come at once into immediate living contact with Revelation. And I've really found this to be true. So this is how God can really reveal to us stuff through this this thing, through the way through this thing of reading the Psalms. So um, traditional directions for uh, praying the Psalms. Let's see what we're doing. Okay. Make them your own. Okay. So let's say I've read you kind of some depressing psalms. You know there are a lot of non-depressing psalms, um, especially toward the end. And uh, but when you get to these sort of you know things that are sort of downbeat. You don't have to pray them about yourself, especially. I mean, not all of us are depressed, hopefully. So, uh, but but think about someone you know who's depressed. Pray that on their behalf. You know, that can remind you of them. Uh, pray them thoughtfully, reflecting on what is being said and how it fits your own situation. And if possible, pray them to a team uh, and pray them with others. So these, I'm just telling you, traditional directions for praying the psalms. Okay. Um. Another suggestion is to think about think about what it meant, and then think about what it means. Okay, so think of it in those two registers. So what? Because you know at the beginning it's very easy to skip those uh, the kind of the top line of most psalms, uh, which I've read is inspired. You know, but anyway, like where it says you know <laughs> like a tune, the tune of somebody written by you know. Uh, Asaph and whatnot, but a lot of times it'll have. It, when Augustine wrote his iterations on the Psalms, he actually like commented on those things, like he said what it meant. So you might think about that. But anyway, think think about what it meant in its context back in the day, and then think about what it means for now, like for today, because God's giving this. That's His living word He's given to us. Okay. Um, here are some other things. The first line. So in this kind of ancient poetry, the first line is often a clue to the content of the rest of the psalm. So that might help you kind of think about the psalm. A lot of the psalms have the so-called chiastic structure, this kind of X-type structure where it, you know, it starts with something and then it goes to something in the middle and then it comes back to the thing it started with. That's the chiastic structure. So ask yourself if the psalm has that structure. Some of the psalms, like Psalm 119 in Hebrew, are alphabetical. Okay, so... If you're finding this is a little it's reading a little bit funny, if you dig deep, you might discover well it's got some structure like some literary structure that you should be aware of that might help you understand it better. Um, some of them are messianic, and those can be real puzzling to pray about. You know, pray for yourself if you're not realizing the context. So just be sure to think of them in that context. And they're about Jesus. Um, uh, when they're historical, think about salvation history. So like Psalms 105 and 106 are historical psalms. And, but it really tells you, like, God's got this gigantic picture that he's unfolding for humankind, and it really helps us sort of understand our place in it. When you read Israel, think about God's people. You know, so, so we're God's people now. Um, okay, I guess depending on how you think of it, the Jews, he said he wouldn't be forsaking the Jews, but we're God's people. Okay, so when you read Israel, try to substitute you know, God's people for the term Israel and see if it works. And like I say, in the imprecatory psalms or the cursing psalms, uh, try to pray those against the forces of evil. So here's an example just in Psalm 46 how the chiastic struggle, uh, structure works. So this is a psalm. It's a great psalm. I 
this is one I think about a lot. So uh, God is for us a refuge and strength, an ever-present help in times of distress. So we shall not fear, though the earth should rock, though the mountains quake to the heart of the sea. So these environmental catastrophes. Even though its waters rage and foam, even though the mountains be shaken by its tumult, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. The waters of a river give joy to the city of God. So now he's shifting because it's like this, is, and this is the center part of the psalm. Give joy to the city of God, the holy place, the dwelling of the Most High. God is within it; it cannot be shaken. God's holy place. God will help it at the dawning of the day. Nations are in tumult; kingdoms are shaken. He lifts his voice; the earth melts away. God, the God of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So that's kind of buried within the center of the stronghold of the psalm. You could think of it. And then, come and behold the works of the Lord, the awesome deeds that He's done on earth. He puts an end uh, to wars over all the earth. Um, the bow He breaks. The spear He snaps. The shield He bursts with fire. Be still and know that I am God, exalted over nations, exalted over earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So see, it ends up where it began. And anyway, that's kind of how the so-called chiastic structure works. Uh, And I think it really is helpful. So some psalms have these things like in Psalm 137, he's talking, blessed is the man who bashes the heads of the Babylonian babies against the rocks. Or in Psalm 37, which is a really good psalm, really kind of you know about waiting and about um, not getting angry and, and just kind of waiting on the Lord. Um, and then it says he's never seen anybody, never seen a righteous man who's been poor. You know, well, there probably been some righteous men who've been poor. He, I mean, he didn't see them, but <laughs> but anyway. So how do you think? How do you think of this? So here's from C.S. Lewis. This helped me when I read it. If we are free to delete all, let's see, if we are free to delete all inconvenient data, so like people say, oh, well, that just didn't, just don't pay attention to that. You know, that's like, uh, you know, we can't, we don't, we modern people don't think that. If we are free to delete all inconvenient data, we shall certainly have no theological difficulties. But for the same reason, no solutions and no progress. The very writer of the detective stories, not to mention the scientists, know better. The troublesome fact, the apparent absurdity, which can't be fitted into any synthesis we have yet made, is precisely the one we must not ignore. Ten to one, it's in that covert, in that covert the fox is lurking. There is always hope if we keep an unsolved problem fairly in view. There's none if we pretend it's not there. So for these difficult places in the Psalms, okay, you don't know exactly what to do with it, but just put it on hold for now. Maybe read about it. Don't let it kind of disrupt all your, uh, you know, your thinking, but come back to it later. Like Psalm 82 where he's saying, God sits among the gods. Well, it's like, well, we're not polytheists, so what does that mean? But we'll figure it out. So... Um, Anyway, so I think that's... uh, So here's some suggestions for praying the Psalms daily. Try to pray them regularly and consecutively. When you pray the Psalms this way, stop. If you come to a point where God seems to be speaking to you, uh, 
and think about what God might be saying to you and take note. And if you come to a psalm of lament and it doesn't seem to express your frame of mind, think of someone you know who's going through a tough time and pray that psalm with them in mind. So in summary, praying the psalms can uh, strengthen our prayer life and I think really build our resilience and help us in our work. So they can shape our thoughts, they'll shape our vision, they'll shape us spiritually. I think God can work us in this different way. They'll point us to the right way to live. We're not alone. The psalmist shares our struggle so we can see this. And it's not just people reassuring it, you know us how people feel that way. And we're not alone in this world, uh, though it can seem like it for a long time, because God is with us. So that's what the psalms teach us. So we'll stop there. And anybody want to ask some questions or object or anything, comments? I don't have no good materials come to mind, frankly. But I do think it would be a good project. I mean, it'd be a good project just to have a you know have a Bible study and either do the whole book of Psalms or um, or you know figure out the types of Psalms you want to throw. But honestly, going through them in the order they're put together is a useful is a useful thing. And when you look at the structure of the Psalms, you know there are five books in the Psalms and there's an internal structure to it. I, I'm real sure they're not in there randomly. So um, anyway, yeah. Sorry. yeah. Yes? Uh, I really appreciate this, Sam. So helpful. Yeah. Um, I've used the Psalms and my Bible is all colored with tears or a picture of a fortress or angel things. So if I'm in a stressful situation, I can go to a page where there's tears and pray that, and God, I know God is hearing my heart. Nice. Well, we may be getting kicked out. Oh, one more. Yes, another question. Thank you. Well, you see me around. I'm glad to talk, and uh, thanks for coming. <laughs>